You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. In today's episode, we talk with Brian Litfin about his series finale, Caesar's Lord. We take a look at some strange medical practices from world history, and our bookworm reviewer, Angela Bell, shares a review of Paint and Nectar by Ashley Clark. And as for our giveaways, we just wrapped up the giveaway for The Premonition at Withers Farm by Jamie Jo Wright. I just sent out the email for our winner. So if you entered that giveaway, check your emails. Current giveaways are A Daughter's Courage by Misty M. Beller, which closes on October 31st at midnight. And also The Secrets of Emberwild by Stefina McGee ends November 7th. Our guest today is the author of The Conqueror and Every Knee Shall Bow, as well as several works of nonfiction, including Wisdom from the Ancients, Early Christian Martyr Stories, After Acts, and Getting to Know the Church Fathers. A former professor of theology at the Moody Bible Institute, he has earned his PhD in Religious Studies from the University of Virginia and his THM in Historical Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a professor of theology in the Rawlings School of Divinity and Liberty University. He and his wife have two adult children and live in Lynchburg, Virginia. So, Brian Litvin, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Yeah, wonderful to be here. I'm so excited to talk and glad you invited me. Well, to start out with something fun, if you could sit down in person and have a conversation with anyone in history, who would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, you're supposed to say Jesus, right? So we... If you do, that's cheating because you are supposed to say it. Exactly. Well, Jesus would be my number one. But to answer your question, I'd probably pick Emperor Constantine, who is a figure in this book of mine here, because he was just such an important figure. And it'd be fun to talk about the shape of his faith and kind of see whether it's legitimate or not and what his world was like. So he'd certainly be one that I'd love to have a chat with. He seems like a complex character in history because, yes, he turned to the Christian faith, but then he took extreme measures to try to turn the whole empire of Rome around. Yeah, that that would be an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a figure. You're right. He's a complex figure. Scholars and historians have been debating his faith and kind of whether it was propaganda or legitimate or something like that. Who can really know? I guess maybe only the Lord knows, but certainly a figure who lived in a pivotal period of history and for that reason would be fun to talk to. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Mm-hmm. Now, we know you're a history buff, but why did you choose to write fiction instead of sticking with just nonfiction? <laughs> well, if you've done writing, as you know, and you've talked to many writers, sometimes that's not a choice. You can't just, if you have it within you, if you have that baby that's in your creative womb, so to speak, then it has to come out. And I feel like this kind of had to come out of me, whether I wanted it to or not. But it's, yeah, it's a great period of church history and one that I just, I knew from nonfiction and from academic study, I just knew how many complex and important important stories were there. And it just seemed like 
I needed to tell that story in, from a fictional point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really glad that you have. See, Darcy is the one who like knows so much about like church history and she's interested in theology. And I'm a little bit more, well, I'm an elementary school teacher. <laughs> so I know a bit about the characters that you're talking about. But for me, a Christian fiction book is a great way for me to be able to do that. So I'm glad you have that. Well, and Kylie, the book isn't for people just like Darcy who already love it or have to have a certain education. It's a it's an adventure story. It, the story tells itself. I would say that anybody can access this. Anybody can come to it and get caught up. And, and yeah, sure, you might learn something along the way or you might appreciate historical age in a way that you didn't. But you don't have to come to these books with any kind of prior qualifications. If you just love a good story, a great adventure, a saga, then jump right in. And if you learn something along the way, then so be it. Yes. That's the cool part about fiction is, at least historical fiction for me, is how it makes history and learning just something that you're not doing on purpose. It just kind of happens as you enjoy the story. Totally. And I think as a professor or as a teacher, I already know some of that stuff. And so it's then it's fun to just say, okay, but I don't have to lecture on this. Let's just put it out there in this amazing, colossal story with romance and epic scale. And then the people that aren't into the academic side of it can just go along with the story. Yes. If that is an easy part of your artistic process, what would you say is the most difficult part of story creation for you? For some people, it's probably the writing of it, and that's not the case for me. It's probably more in the planning of it. So I'm one of these people that plans it out ahead of time, and I try to leave enough flex to go with the flow when it happens. But the challenging part is, okay, this scene's going to be about this, and then this scene, and this one, 10 scenes later, needs to have a throwback to this scene. And so that's the part where you're really grinding it out. Once once you have that really detailed outline, I think my story outline was like, 30 or 40,000 words. Whoa! <laughs> just tell, t- paragraph by paragraph telling what I'm going to say just in my own vernacular. So then it's like you get to that scene and you're going to write it. It's Just write it because you know what's going to happen already and you know it's not going to get you into a dead end or something. Ah, okay. So you do the heavy lifting in your outlining phase. No, yeah. Yeah, I'm not even sure, like I said, I could call it an outline. It's more like a, a kind of a script, so to speak, that's in it's in my own words. It's not something I would publish, but I have a sense. And then when I get there, it's just, okay, this is what needs to happen in this scene. Boom. And that's the fun part. Yeah, kind of like a screenplay. When you write fiction, you like have to build that scene. Whereas a screenplay, it just really has the basics in it. So it's almost like part of your drafting, doing the work ahead of time instead of going back and doing a bunch of revising. It's like you're building up, exactly. so to speak. Yeah, I hardly did any revising. I say that. Of course, I did in the editing process. But comparatively, the big pieces, I didn't have to move them around because I had already charted out how they were going to work. And I knew what this domino has to fall to hit that domino. And if this piece doesn't, and I solved all those in the planning process. And then that makes the writing really fun because you've already solved those problems. So it's just, hey, now let's unfold this thing in greater detail. Nice. Yeah. I envy people who are able to use that process. Maybe I'll get there one of these days, but yeah, (laughs) it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It takes discipline for sure. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? I would want my readers or your listeners to just 
really be aware that this is a really fun story. A lot of the interviews I've been doing, it's uh, people are fascinated by, oh, he's a professor. Oh, he's going to bring this sort of academic or he knows the background like a scholar would know. And I suppose that's true. But the thing I want to share and maybe haven't been able to say as much is that it's first and foremost, it's a story. It's first and foremost, it's an entertainment. I'm not secretly trying to teach and hide it inside of a novel. This thing better be fun and you better want to turn the next page or it hasn't done its job. So the hidden value of these books in the Constantine's Empire trilogy is that they're swashbucklers. They read like an Indiana Jones movie or something like that, where there's lots of the hero, the heroine, the dashing around, the big stakes, the big scale, the enemies coming at you, but the hero and the heroine grab hands and make it to the other side. And so it really has that kind of old-fashioned, in a good way, that old-fashioned, great big, sprawling, romantic saga adventure. (laughs) And I tried to write it that way. Yeah. Didn't C.S. Lewis say something about, oh, sure, it's nice if we can weave in some some teaching into the story, but first and foremost, we're going to give them a good story. That's what we're setting out to do here. Your your buyers, I guess, the people that say, I'm going to pay good money to acquire this product, they want that. If they wanted a textbook, they can find that too, and I've written those. But if they want the story, I feel it's my job to give it, and I think I have. Nice. Well, let's dive right into talking about it. And I'll go ahead and read the blurb. This book is book three in your Constantine Emperor series. You're finishing out with Caesar's Lord. After more than a decade of tumult, Roman warrior Rex and his aristocratic wife Flavia are thankful to the god they serve for the peaceful life they're living in the city of Alexandria. But with the empire in flux, it cannot last. When Rex is called away to serve Constantine in his fight against Licinius, Flavia's loneliness and longing for a baby lead her down the road of temptation. Perhaps one of Egypt's gods will grant her conception? As battles rage both within and without, Rex and Flavia will have to rely on God's forgiveness and protection if they are to survive the trials to come. Their adventures sweep them into the great events of the ancient church, including the forging of the Nicene Creed, terrible murders within the imperial family, the quest for the true cross of Christ in Jerusalem, and the end of pagan Rome as a new Christian empire dawns. Brian Litvin brings his epic Constantine's Empire series to a thrilling close with this dramatic tale of struggle and redemption. That makes me want to read it. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. (laughs) I'd read that book. So a soldier for Rome during the fall of pagan Rome to the Christian Empire. This sounds like enough adventure to tempt anyone who loves books. (laughs) But what is most fascinating about this time in history? So this is a a period when the Roman Empire was uh, fighting to see who was going to be its lord. So you have its past where it was under the pagan gods, it was under Jupiter and the whole pantheon. But then on the other hand, you have this new faith, the faith of Jesus Christ. Will the empire bow its knee to its new lord? Will it allow Jesus instead of Jupiter to be its lord? And so it generates civil wars. Constantine is on one side of that. He wants to put Jesus forward, but then you have these figures like Licinius and others, who was his brother-in-law, who want to keep it the old way, keep it under the gods. And so there is that kind of macro theme of what's going to happen to Rome. And of course, the gods do fall. People don't worship anymore. Jupiter, they don't worship the ancient gods, but we do still worship Jesus. And so he's the victor. And I would say that's an overarching theme and a thread woven through all of the stories that I'm telling here. 
And as a follower of Christ serving in the Roman army, what challenges does Rex face? Yeah, that's a great question. He starts out really not being a follower of Christ. And so he finds himself confronted with kind of his own violent tendencies as a warrior. And what do I do with those? And how do I bring my strength under the lordship of Jesus? And he wrestles with turn the other cheek motif. And do I need a God who's a war God? Or can I come underneath the Prince of Peace? And what do I do with that? And so he reconciles that in his own heart. So that's a challenge he faces. And even after he's a Christian, he still has to think about things like, how do I wage war? And what is a just war? And is it right to fight the enemies who are oppressing believers? That's one thing they, they do recognize recognizes that the other side is torturing, killing, and maiming fellow believers. And so either you go to war to protect them or the carnage continues. And so these were real issues that were being debated in the ancient church. Yeah. It's funny to think that they were dealing with them back then and seeing Rex as a soldier, I just wonder how much his character arc and his side of the story reach out and witness to an individual in the military who's reading it to just today. Yeah, for sure. That's a great insight, honestly, there, Kylie. And I think this is a story that appeals to men. It's partly that aspect that you just said, but partly just his masculinity and kind of his masculine journey. And I wrote this book. I think women would love it too. They have, and they've enjoyed the different parts of it. But um, this is is a book you could give to your husband, your boyfriend, your brother, your dad, if he likes a good adventure, if he likes manly characters that face the kind of things that men are facing, then this is the book for you. And uh, the soldiering is just one part of that. But I think more broadly is this masculine journey that that he goes on. And what does it mean to be a man and a Christian? So I hope your readers and your listeners will enjoy it on that level. And the cover is very appealing with the robe that the lady's wearing and the hair. I can see how it would appeal to both men and women. So I'm curious because <laughs> I write and read romance. Is there a bit of a romantic thread? I'm assuming there's a husband and wife, but how much does that come into play? Well, and we're talking about the third book. So the classic will they, won't they get together storyline is what drives book one for sure. And there are those kinds of issues are in book two as well. They meet and they're both teenagers. I mean, this is a, a saga that takes place over a couple decades, but the, in the first book they meet, he's a pagan and a warrior and a man of bloodshed. She's a, the daughter of a senator. He's a barbarian. She's the daughter of a senator and is a Christian. Their faith and her, I'm falling in love with him, but I shouldn't be because of what he stands for. What do I do with that? And her ability to lay that on the altar or for her to, for Flavia to release that is her own sort of lordship moment. If he comes under the lordship of Christ by relinquishing bloodshed, can she let the domain, the kingdom of her own heart come under the lordship of Christ. And so the theme of lordship and kingdom and whether Jesus is Lord over all is in every one of the characters. And for her, it's certainly that. But like you said, by the third book, they're married. And the storyline in the blurb you just read about what about a baby? And she goes through some temptations to rely, as ancient people did, to rely on other, on goddesses or something. And that's a big no-no for a Christian, of course. So that's a sin that she struggles with. So yeah, there's so many interwoven, deeply Christian themes in this trilogy. It sounds amazing. And I'm just wondering, looking at the audience, how would you rate this book? Like as far as, is it like a PG-13? What are we looking at as far as readers go? This is a question we get a lot and you see a lot in reviews. So reaching the readers who love fiction, I think there's almost safety they feel in knowing what to expect. Yeah. 
That's a good question. I've never been asked that. It's a, uh, it's not a soft read. The themes and the real history behind it, you've got real deaths that were happening. You've got martyrs. You've got soldiers dying on the battlefield. You've got high stakes. You've got deep interwoven societal sins that don't just disappear overnight as Christians strive. So because of that, I didn't write it to be soft or sanitized or clean. I tried to write it with some of those things presented. I wouldn't say wallowed in or something like that, but certainly not hidden. I'm not sure it's a book you'd give to an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old, but I think anybody who's presented with that is being presented with things that scripture itself deals with. There are rapes in in the Old Testament. There are hard statements of scripture and no pulling of the punches in the narratives. You've got adultery. Can I put a rating on it? I'm not sure. Is it deeply biblical and Christian and redemptive and holy, even as you present unholiness and you have to at least present it to be aware of it? Yes, absolutely. It's deeply Christian and I believe God glorifying, even when by showing darkness, you show the the light that overcomes. I love stories that do that, honestly, because God's light is extremely beautiful, and it doesn't matter what darkness you put it up again. The darker the darkness, the stronger, the more powerful, the more glorious is His light. So honestly, I actually love stories that kind of dive into the hard stuff because there's just so much opportunity for the beauty of the light. Well, right. And a lot of writers, secular writers, or a lot of books present the darkness just to fascinate you with darkness. I never do that. I have no interest in writing about hard things or ugly things for their own sake or because of a sort of prurient interest or something. You write about those things so that when the redemption comes, as you just said, Darcy, it's all the more dramatic. It's all the more God-glorifying because he reached that low. He reached that person who committed that sin, who's deeply aware of it, and you've experienced that sense of sin and darkness, all the more do you sense the redemption that comes in Christ. Yes, yes. And I think that is the dividing line between what makes it Christian fiction and what makes it secular is how, no matter how much you may go into dark places with a story, you're always with the intention of showing God's grace and His power. Now, I will just add to that. I don't wallow. So your readers shouldn't be scared off on this. We're talking about this. It's not like graphic or something. We're delicate in what we say. We present it, but we're still delicate. Yes, exactly. Well, have you got any future book news you can share with us? Not on the moment. I mean, I have some projects in the works, but they're not yet for public consumption. So unfortunately, I cannot answer that. That sounds very evasive, doesn't it? But yeah, just keep an eye on my name in the next year or two, and you'll see some stuff forthcoming. Nice. These characters have been busy for three books now, so they should enjoy their heyday. Then you can get out some more. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. And I've loved them. They are like friends to me now. And the the stuff that they do and experience, it was like me living vicariously. You read in the blurb, they go to the Council of Nicaea, where we have the Nicene Creed. They go to Jerusalem and uncover the fragments of what is at least believed to be the cross of Christ himself in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. So there's some really fun stuff that these characters get to experience, and it's great. Very cool. And for our listeners, Brian is offering a copy of Caesar's Lord. To enter to win, just check out our giveaway page at historicalbookworm.com. You can also find the link for that giveaway in the show notes of this episode. Now, Brian, where can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, I do have my own webpage, which is brianlitfin.com. It's B-R-Y-A-N. And the last name is Litfin, L-I-T. 
L-I-T-F-I-N, brianlitfin.com. So you just put that in the browser, you'll find me. Of course, you go on where books are sold, christianbook.com, amazon.com. You go to those places, put that same name in, and you'll pull up these three books in the Constantine's Empire series. And I really hope your readers will do it and will enjoy it. Because if you get into this story, it really, it's a saga from beginning to end over multiple years. And these characters, they see it all. And they're part of some really important stuff in church history. That's cool. I like stories that are long and arcing and that you can journey with the characters. It's bad to be um, interviewing you on book three in a series because now my to-be-read pile just gained three books instead of just (laughs) one. Hey, go for it, right? Well, you can read the third one and then you can say, oh man, I got to know the backstory. Or you can get all three and and just read it start to finish because there are consecutive stories. I would say they lead into each other, but each one, it stands alone. So you could read them separately as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, I enjoyed it too. It's been a fun conversation and you guys are great hosts. Thanks for having me. Now for a pinch of the past. The practice of medicine is a fascinating and sometimes disturbing subject of history. Today, we look at just a few weird practices people hope to cure them of illness and injury. So first off, Kylie, what would you imagine to be the surgery found earliest in the archaeological record? The surgery? I don't know. Something like removing, okay, this is probably gross, but like removing some kind of burrowing insect inside of someone. Okay, that that's, that <laughs> seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not too deep, a little bit surface level, but yeah. Yeah. The one that actually dates back to prehistoric times is trepanning or trephination, which is the practice of boring or scraping holes holes in the human skull. What? Yes. For what purpose? Different purposes. It was used to treat head trauma for thousands of years. It aided in removing bone fragments from a skull bashed by a weapon or a fall, or it could hopefully relieve the pressure of subdural bleeding. During the Middle Ages, it was actually a treatment for severe headaches and migraines. And I'm going, that migraine had to be something else if you're going to resort to drilling a hole in your skull. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That sounds terrible. Like, on one hand, I'm really impressed. And on the other, I'm just horrified. It sounds crude, but apparently it was a delicate process. Ideally, the surgeon bored only through the skull itself and exposed the tissue underneath, but didn't actually cut into the meninges or the blood vessels surrounding the brain. Wow. That's amazing. The human race is awesome. It is. Archaeologists have found evidence of trepanning all over the world, China, South America, Europe, in men, women, and children. Roman writer Galen acknowledged the danger of the process, stating that too much pressure accidentally applied to the meninges would render the person unconscious or in some cases paralyzed. Oh, wow. But in spite of the risks, it was apparently fairly successful. The survival rate of patients was pretty high, and many healed and just lived for years after the treatment. Some skulls found in France, dating back to approximately 6500 BC, show patients who had the operation at some point healed and eventually underwent it again later in life. Oh, oh, it just gives me shivers. I know. Like you think no anesthesia necessarily? (gasps) I hope they had alcohol. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Something. I know. Anything. Well, our second strange 
process centers around the bubonic plague or the Black Death, which swept Europe. And there were many bizarre and sometimes horrifying treatments that arose. And of course, none of them were actually successful. Oh. Yeah. Bubonic plague is a bacterial infection that infects the lymph nodes. And today it's treated with antibiotics, of course. But in the 14th century, faced with a disease that could kill within 12 to 72 hours of the symptoms onset, one doctor wrote, instantaneous death occurs when the aerial spirit escaping from the eyes of the sick man strikes the healthy person standing near and looking at the sick. They just had no clue what was how transmission happened or how to treat their patients. So faced with that, one treatment that they tried called for killing a snake and chopping it up in pieces and this poultice was then smeared over the swollen buboes or boils and the reasoning was that snakes were evil and evil is drawn to evil so the evil in the snake was supposed to draw the evil disease out of the person's body i wonder that's kind of sad and i wonder how many times they did that so it's like a repeated process and why would you repeat something with Without any success. Exactly. It's not doing anything. But I don't know. It's interesting. Just when they didn't know anything else to do, they turned to this mystical theory that they have. And it's just interesting, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one kind of funny magical cure-all was the unicorn horn. Okay. I'm intrigued. Yes. It was a popular medicine in medieval Europe. And according to mythology, only a pure maiden could subdue a unicorn, so its horn, known as alicorn, was very rare and expensive. You would grind it into powder, mix it into food or drink, and alicorn was considered a reputable treatment for any illness. It was tried for the Black Death, but they would use it to treat basically anything. Where did they get unicorn horn? Uh huh. In their time, the existence of unicorns was pretty much accepted, but scholars today think that it might have been the tusk of a narwhal or the horn of a rhinoceros. Okay. Hmm. So animals that do have a single horn, so it's fudging it a little bit here, but Mm -hmm. that might be what they passed off as the horn of a unicorn. Okay. Oh, cool. That's interesting. Yes. Now, our final practice is something that's actually still common today, acupuncture. Hmm. I wonder, but... Oh, what time period are we talking about? I know needles used to be made of bone and then eventually they went on to not brass. Was it brass needles? Maybe bronze. Bronze? Yeah. Of course, they've been sewing for so long. I guess you would have needles. Exactly. (laughs) You would. The practice originated in ancient China about 3,000 years ago. And the first thorough documentation of acupuncture comes from a book around 100 BC called The Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. It's based on this theory that a vital life force called qi flows along pathways in the human body, and the strategic piercing of the skin with very thin needles was thought to regulate and balance the flow of qi. Interesting. Funny how it's used even today, but with different beliefs behind how that actually works. Exactly. The practice has undergone extensive research since 1950, actually. And uh, reputable studies have shown it does have a positive effect on many patients. But most acupuncture practice in the United States today is a combination of kind of Eastern tradition and Western research. It's thought to stimulate nerves and muscles. And these days may include electric charges administered through the needles. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I've seen, I think it's called electrostimulation or something like that, done a couple different times. My aunt broke her wrist. And so she had that, like a wrap. And then I have a bad knee. And so I would go in and have the electrostimulation into the knee along with like ice. Oh, wow. Very cool. Smarts. Yeah. Oh, oh, you probably don't remember this. You're probably too young. (laughs) (laughs) But when I was a kid, (laughs) they had these infomercials where you would wear these belts on your belly and it would shock the muscles and give you abs. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, I was a teenager. So like my mom had one and my cousins would come over and we'd like watch soap operas and eat popcorn and use the belt. It hurt. It hurt. Oh but it like had these a little electro, like a little shock patches they stuck on your belly and it would shock. <laughs> oh, wow. That's funny, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they say that acupuncture done right is actually a lot less drastic than that mm. with their little needles. Some people say they don't feel anything. Yeah, But it apparently affects the flow of electricity through the body. One interesting thing I noted was pediatric patients or those averse to needles may opt for laser acupuncture, which just uses concentrated light instead of a needle. And it's actually proven just as effective as the traditional treatment. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And it's funny to think that it originated so many years ago and had a what our Western brains would consider a very just mystical and not very rational theory behind it. But actually, apparently they were onto something. Okay, cool. While we may laugh or shake our heads at what passed for medical treatment in history, all science is, after all, a process of experimentation. I can't help wondering what accepted practice today will surprise the doctors in years to come. Time for our bookworm review. Paint and Nectar by Ashley Clark. In 1929, a spark forms between Eliza, a talented watercolorist, and William, a charming young man with a secret that could ruin her career. Their families forbid their romance because of a long-standing feud over missing heirloom silver. Still, Eliza and William's passion grows despite the barriers, causing William to deeply regret the secret he's keeping, but setting things right will come at a cost. In present-day Charleston, a mysterious benefactor gifts Lucy Laguerre an old house, along with all the secrets it holds, including enigmatic letters about an antique silver heirloom. Declan Pinckney, whom Lucy's been avoiding since their disastrous first date, is set on buying her house for his family's development company. As Lucy uncovers secrets about the house, its garden, and the silver, she becomes more determined than ever to preserve the historic Charleston property, not only for history's sake, but also for her own. Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me at my website, www.authorangelabell.com. With her debut novel, The Dress Shop on King Street, Ashley Clark stitched herself into the fabric of my must-buy authors list. When I learned it was the first book in a series, I was thrilled, and a little worried the sequel wouldn't live up to my expectations. Dear reader, I needn't have worried. Reading an Ashley Clark book is like drinking a glass of iced tea on a summer's day. You simultaneously want to swig back the whole thing and savor the sweetness of every sip. Paint and Nectar, book two in Clark's Heirloom Secret series, is a work of art from beginning to end. Inhabited by a cast of multifaceted characters and brimming with Southern charm, This book solidified Clark's place on my favorite author's list. 
My head spins thinking of the work that goes into crafting a dual-time novel, but Clark pulls it off like an old pro, weaving the plots and timelines together seamlessly. Her use of metaphor is exquisite, tugging at the heartstrings without breaking them, and her sassy steel magnolia wit is an utter delight. If you love Southern fiction and nuanced dual-time stories, Paint and Nectar is sure to be your cup of tea. Well, I am still on my track to finding a church, so I visited again with my earplugs, and I actually really enjoy the service. It's good to be back in church because for a few months now, I haven't been going regularly, and it was just very encouraging to hear the message. It was funny, the pastor even said, if you've been in church for a while, this is probably more of a reminder message, but it's good to have those reminders. So it was good to to be there with a bunch of other people all worshiping the king together. So that's been fun. I'm not sure if this is the church where I will land, but it's good to be there for now. Yeah. And I'm glad you're looking. You're attending church. Your heart is open to God's calling and you're taking the time to worship when you are with other believers instead of just staying home on your couch and watching a video of a church. Because, you know, that's easy to do after COVID and and just kind of the way that we were trying to fellowship and trying to have church. So I'm glad you're putting yourself out there. It's And I'm praying for you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it's good. I am just gearing up for the harvest party at my school, which is just really exciting. I just love the little kiddos there. They're so funny. It's really interesting working at a Christian school. And I was raised fairly conservative, but we were at carpet time the other day and a little boy just with all his beauty and excitement announced that his family was throwing a Halloween party and everyone was invited. And another kiddo looked at him and said, well, Halloween's a pagan holiday, so I can't come. (laughs) Oh my gosh, kids are so blunt. I was like, okay, guys. (laughs) But we are celebrating harvest and just counting our blessings. And it really is a great reminder to me that many of our American and or Christian holidays begin with some roots that weren't altogether Christian. Um, And I've just been focusing on being grateful. And this year, I'm especially working with my class on acts of service because it's so easy to get wrapped up in receiving gifts and what will I get next and just the the bright lights and the shiny packages and the big bows and the sparkles. And it's especially easy for children when they're at such a vulnerable age to get wrapped up in that. And so we're actually doing some kind of mission-oriented things with my second graders this year. And I'm really excited for that and just really feeling grateful in this rainy, cold fall season (laughs) uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest. And yeah, so... That pretty much just, that's just a little taste of my life. (laughs) You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.